0: Well, friends, personal stories are a part of a bigger story. We've read books. We've listened to accounts. We've watched documentaries that make this clear. Personal stories are part of bigger stories. Whether it's the account of a soldier or a general or a political leader during World War II, Or maybe it's a documentary about a player or a coach that is a part of a sports dynasty, Vince Lombardi's Green Bay Packers, or John Wooden's UCLA Bruins. Or maybe it's a book about a minister or a theologian during the Protestant Reformation. Personal stories about individuals are part of a bigger story. This is true in all aspects of life, and it is certainly true of God's revelation of redemptive history found in the pages of Scripture. We have been, for a number of weeks now, considering the book of Ruth, this wonderful historical narrative in the form of short story, one of the greatest short stories ever written. And we come today to the end of that story, the end of that book, and the way that the book ends, as is true of every verse in scripture, the way the book ends is intentional. The story of Ruth, add to that the story of Boaz, the story of Naomi, is a part of a much bigger story, and that is what we're going to think pointedly about today. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to the book of Ruth. We're going to be considering verses 13 to 22 of Ruth chapter 4 today. But I realize that some may have not been here for the entire series. I plan to do this anyway. I'm going to survey the entire book briefly for us. So if you've not heard any of these messages, even if you've not read Ruth before, you will have an idea of where we are. Beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1 we learn that there was famine in the land of Judah. And in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, there was a man named Elimelech, married to a woman named Naomi, with two sons named Malon and Kilion. In part due to the famine, they leave the promised land and relocate to Moab, where they sojourn, they live for a period of time. While in Moab, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, he dies. At this point, the two sons, the sons of Naomi, marry Moabite women. One woman named Ruth, another named Orpah. But then, after a period of years pass, both of Naomi's sons die as well. So now Naomi is left without her husband and without her sons, And it's just her and her daughters-in-law. In In the fields of Moab, in the providence of God, Naomi hears that the Lord has visited His people and has given them grain, has given them food. So she decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem. She's going to go back to the land of Judah. Her daughters-in-law are going to go with her. But Naomi, for her part, seeks to dissuade them from doing so. In her mind... From her perspective, the Lord had dealt very bitterly with her. And because of that bitterness, there was no prospect of anything good for anyone who would come with her. Ruth and Orpa, her daughters-in-law, would have no prospects of marriage or family as Naomi saw it. And she encouraged them to go back to their homes, back to their own families, back to their own gods. Ruth, for her part, was persistent. She insisted that she would come with Naomi, that her people, Naomi's people, would be Ruth's people, that her God would be Ruth's God, and that she would perish where Naomi would perish. And so the two of them journey to Bethlehem. When they arrive, it's been a long time since Naomi left, and all of the women, all of the people of the town are asking, Naomi, is that you? Is this Naomi? To which she responds, don't call me Naomi. We know that the name Naomi means pleasant. It means sweet. She says, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt that way with me. I left here full. Things were good. I've come back empty. Got nothing. And this is the Lord's doing. At the end of chapter 1, though, there is this ray of hope, this good thing in the midst of badness, right? The barley harvest is beginning. After famine, there's grain. In chapter two, at the very beginning of it, we're just told very briefly, in kind of a drive-by fashion, that there's this man named Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech, and he's a worthy man. And then we just kind of move on. Ruth asks her mother-in-law about going out into the fields to glean, to scavenge for excess grain that had been dropped on the ground, so that they might have something to eat. Naomi says, "Yeah, it's a good idea. You should go do that." So Ruth just so happened to find herself working in the portion of the field that was owned by Boaz. And at that point, while Ruth is working in the fields that Boaz owns, at that moment, behold, it just so happens that Boaz comes back from town. And they meet. Boaz goes out of his way to show extraordinary kindness to Ruth, a foreigner, a widow. And Ruth is struck by this. She doesn't deserve this kindness. She asks Boaz, why are you treating me this way? His response is two things. One, I've heard everything that you've done for your mother-in-law. I know what she's been through. I know what you've done for her. It's been told to me in full. And I know that you have come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. Boaz Protects and provides for Ruth. He even invites her to his own table. He serves her bread and wine. He provides for her and Naomi extravagantly with pounds upon pounds upon pounds of grain. So when Ruth goes home this first day after gleaning in the fields, Naomi sees all that she has with her and says, girl, where did you glean today? Where did you work today? With whom did you work? Blessed be the man who showed you favor. And Ruth says, well, I worked for a man named Boaz. And Naomi is gripped by the kindness and the grace of God. Blessed be the Lord who has not stopped providing, who has not forsaken the living or the dead, says this woman who just a period of time ago was so bitter she couldn't see straight. God had done that for Naomi. Ruth continues to glean in the fields until the end of the harvest, and she continues to live with her mother-in-law. In the passage of time, Naomi looks at Ruth and says, is it not good that I would seek rest for you? By that she means, is it not good that I would seek rest and security for you in the house of a bridegroom, a redeemer? And so they develop a plan. Naomi does. Here's what you're to do. There's going to be a a gathering of sorts at the threshing floor tonight. The harvest is near over. Boaz will be there. After he has eaten and had something to drink and everybody's kind of lying down, you go quietly and secretly there. Uncover his feet and lay next to him and he'll tell you what to do. In the middle of the night, Boaz is startled awake and a woman is lying next to him. He asks her who she is. And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. And then she says to him, spread your wings, spread your covering over your servant, because you're a redeemer. Are you going to redeem me? And Boaz, for his part, says, yes, I will redeem you. You have shown me kindness in not pursuing younger men, and I will do all of this for you that you have asked. But lie until the morning. There's another kinsman closer in relation to you and Naomi than I am. And it will be his right to refuse whether or not he will redeem you. If he will, great. If he will not, I will redeem you. And so the next morning they awake. Boaz tells people to not let it be known that the woman had come to the threshing floor. He is concerned for Ruth's reputation and perhaps just wanting to mitigate confusion. And then there's this scene at the city gate where Boaz goes to the gate where business and legal matters were handled. And the redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, this unimportant guy, happens to walk by. And Boaz says, bro, come have a seat. Let's talk. And then he calls elders of the city because they would be required, their presence would be required for a legal matter to be settled. And Boaz then talks to this other redeemer, And he says, I just thought I would let you know, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, and she's selling the land that belonged to her former husband. This land is in legal limbo, right? Got to determine what's going to happen with it. So I thought I would tell you and just say here in the presence of everybody, buy it if you'll redeem it. If you'll do that, that's great. But if you're not going to buy the land, let me know because I'm next in line, and I would would buy it. And the guy says, yeah, I'll do that. I'll buy the land. At which point Boaz shrewdly says, oh, and by the way, when you buy the land, you also will acquire Ruth, the Moabite widow. You will need to marry her in accord with God's law, right? Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You need to marry her and have offspring with her to perpetuate the name and the inheritance of the dead. And then the man sort of backpedals on that. He says, yeah, I don't know that that's going to work for me. So then Boaz in front of everyone says, your witness is this day that this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy this land from Naomi and I'm going to marry Ruth. And everybody, through the voice of the elders of the town, everybody says, yes, this is a good thing. And they bless the union of Ruth and Boaz. So that brings us to where we are today. Let's look now to verse 13. This is how the book ends. has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Amen. We thank God for His Word. So very plainly, in terms of what goes down in these final verses, Boaz and Ruth marry. They have a son. Naomi has a grandson. All of this is the kindness and the blessing of the Lord upon these people, and it's very clear it is the kindness and the blessing of the Lord upon Naomi in a particular way. God's providence has been all over these events, bringing Ruth and Boaz together. Ruth has become more valuable to Naomi than seven sons, is what the townspeople say. It's quite a statement. The Lord has been good to Naomi through Ruth, and the Lord has been good to all of these individuals. This baby that is born to Ruth and Boaz is the grandfather of King David. And then to conclude, the author gives us a genealogy of David, beginning with a man named Perez. So, our objective for the rest of our time is to consider the significance of these things. The text itself is plain, but for us, we want to meditate, reflect, understand, apply. In what follows, there's going to be observation, there's going to be some application, there's going to be some explanation. And there's going to be some, get ready for it, redemptive historical covenant theology good stuff here. May the Lord give us grace as we track with his word. So I've numbered the points. There are four of them and then a conclusion. They are of various lengths. I'll give them to you as we go. So point one, this one's brief. This is more of an observation. Number one, the Lord granted conception to Ruth in her union with Boaz. You can see this in verse 13. The Lord granted conception to Ruth and Boaz in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So the Lord opens the womb to be sure. That's true all the time. But remember that Ruth was married to Naomi's son, Malon, for a period of up to 10 years in Moab with no children. The Lord here acted and gave this couple a child in order to continue bringing about redemption for his people. We're going to think more about that. The Lord always opens the womb, and there are times when we are told specifically that the Lord has acted to give a child that is going to continue to advance his plan of redemption. That is the case here. Number two, our second point for the morning. The Lord had not left Naomi without a redeemer. The Lord had not left Naomi without A redeemer. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Now, in the immediate context, Obed, the grandson, is the person in view, the redeemer in view. He would be a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. We've thought about what that means in recent weeks. He would care for her in her old age. It's good for us to see that God had given Naomi a redeemer through a series of circumstances that were less than good, through things that were hard. God had worked through emptiness to bring about his purposes in the lives of his people. We've thought about God's work in Naomi's life, how he emptied her in order to fill her. We've thought about how through all of that, through emptiness, through brokenness, through pain, and then being shown in unmistakable ways the grace and mercy and goodness of God, we thought about how Naomi learned much, how she grew in her understanding of the Lord and His ways through all of this in a way that she would not have had the Lord not emptied her. She was humbled. Her grumbling silenced. Her mouth was filled with praise and thanksgiving. And God had done all of that. Now, saints, as we sit here this morning, it is good for us, as we think about God's word and we think about our lives, it is good for us to see and know that God does the same things in our lives too. He empties in order to fill. He breaks in order to put back together. We go through things sometimes that are hard, that are heartbreaking, even. Things that are puzzling, that we have no clue how to understand. We go through things that are frustrating. We feel thwarted at every turn. There are days, weeks, years maybe, where we survey the landscape of our lives and we see no earthly good whatsoever. Now, in those moments, in those seasons, what we don't do is try to read through every line of God's providence. We don't try to discern exactly what the Lord is doing in every specific detail. The secret things, beloved, belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. We look to His Word, we know His character. We cling to his promises. We heed his warnings. We avoid trying to figure out specifically every little thing that God is doing because when we do that, we will most certainly get it wrong. But having said that, we lean in in the midst of suffering and emptiness. We don't lose heart. We press on. We put one foot in front of the other, trusting Christ Clinging to the promises of God in Christ. And we do this knowing that God will produce good things in us. He will work steadfastness in his children. He will produce the fruit of his spirit in us. So saints, take heart when life is difficult. When your heart is heavy. Take heart that the Lord spends Our sorrows well he will complete his work in us he has shown himself to be faithful to do that time and time and time again in the lives of people who were just like us we can trust him God taught Naomi that and Naomi learned that number three I want to talk about for a minute. I want us to consider together. I'm just going to give it to you and I'll explain what I mean. Number three, authorial intent and the genealogy at the end of Ruth. We're going to think together about the intent of the author of the book and the genealogy at the end of the book. So the phrase authorial intent is used often by pastor, preacher types, and theologians to convey This principle, we need to concern ourselves with what the authors of Scripture meant to communicate in their context. If we're going to be faithful students of the Scriptures, it's true. Now, regarding the book of Ruth as a whole, in all of this, God has been pursuing bigger purposes than bringing two worthy individuals named Ruth and Boaz together. That is a thing that he would bring Ruth and Boaz together because he's good and loving and gracious and kind to them. And at the same time, he's doing more than just that. And my argument, thought for us today, is that the fact that the author includes this genealogy at the end of the book makes it plain that the author understood that too. You don't put that genealogy at the end of this book unless you understand, inspired of the Spirit, yes, but unless you understand that something bigger than Ruth and Boaz has happened. What looked like a story of personal emptiness being filled and personal needs being met turns out to be God's way of meeting a far bigger need. God had planned, orchestrated, and used all of these events in this story, we've recounted them this morning, to bring about his own purposes that were much bigger than any of the people involved could have ever imagined. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, the elders of the city bless the union of Ruth and Boaz. They say, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. These men spoke better than they knew when they blessed this union. Now before we get to the highest and most important things that we can say on this front, I want to bring this down to earth for us in our experience for just a minute. I want to encourage you with this thought as we think about our lives in the 21st century. Many, many, many years after these events took place. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And so, just as he was involved personally in the lives of these individuals to bring about redemptive purposes... So he is involved personally in the lives of his people today to bring about redemptive purposes. Purposes that are bigger than we could imagine. Everybody who talks about wanting to have a purpose for their lives. From a biblical perspective, the best way to do that is to understand that you are a part of something much bigger than yourself. And this is what I mean. Think about how God has saved us. We're sitting here in this room today trusting Christ. How did that happen? There are billions of people in this world that think very different things than we do. We're not smarter. We're not more upright. Think about how the Lord has saved us. Think about how God works to bring his people to Christ and to build his church. So often, because we're distracted, we're disenchanted, we think that even things like what we're doing right now are just mundane. Ordinary. And these things, reading and preaching and praying and singing, are ordinary things. But what God is doing, saints, is extraordinary. I don't just mean at CBC. I mean big picture. There are people gathered all over this planet today because today is the day that Jesus got up from the grave, Sunday. And the Lord is building his church. God uses the ordinary faithfulness of his people and his ordinary means of grace to accomplish Extraordinary ends, namely the salvation of a multitude that no one can count. What a privilege it is to be a part of what God is doing in the world that He's made. Hear me say that though. God is doing it. He is growing and bringing His kingdom. He is. So take a couple of takeaways from that reality, from these things. One, be of good courage, take heart. The Lord, beloved, is with us. He is near to us, and he will see this, this thing that he's doing. He will see this through. The building of his church, people added to that number. Our growth in the faith, our sanctification, our final salvation, God will see it through. Second takeaway from these realities here. I mean this pastorally and lovingly. I'm talking to myself too. Let's get over ourselves. Let's calm down. Stop trying to do a million things and do the essential things. Show up here on the Lord's Day. Love these people. Love your families. Love your neighbors. Invite people in to taste and see that the Lord is good. Invite people in to see that Christ is a savior. And let's see what the Lord will do with that over the next several decades, should he give us life and he tarry. I'm going to read you a quote from Carl Truman who puts it as only Carl Truman can. This is a good perspective giving piece, just to kind of put a bow on this point. Quote, this is from an article like 10 years ago. The West worships the individual. From the cradle to the grave, it tells us all how special and unique we are, how vital we are to everything, how there's a prize out there just for us. Well, the world turned for thousands of years before any of us showed up. It will continue turning long after we've gone, short of the parousia, that's Christ's second coming. And even if you, me, or the Christian next door are tonight hit by an asteroid, kidnapped by aliens, or sucked down the bathroom plug hole very little will actually change. Even our loved ones will somehow find a way to carry on without us. We really are not that important. So let's drop the pious sounding prayers which translate roughly as, Lord, how can a special guy slash gal like myself help you out some? And pray rather that the Lord will grow his kingdom despite our continual screw ups, that he will keep us from knocking over the furniture, And that when all is said and done, somehow by God's grace, we will finish well, despite our best efforts to the contrary, close quote. The Lord is good, and he's faithful. He uses broken vessels, and he uses very crooked sticks to draw some straight lines. Amen? Amen. Number four. This one is the rest of our time, basically. It's robust, and I'm excited about it. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to try to be as clear as I can. Number four. So I've talked about this in general terms up to now, but I'm going to make it explicit. The genealogy in Ruth 4 culminates in David. And David culminates in Christ. Another way to put that, Ruth and Boaz lead to David. David leads to Jesus. Two significant things that I want to do over the next period of time here. One, I want to consider some of the people who are in the genealogy of David and in the genealogy of Jesus. I trust this is going to encourage us. Second, I want to consider David and Christ. So this is when, saints, we are going to marvel at our God because He is a redeemer, y'all. Okay? Like when you look at this genealogy and the people contained in it, that see it through that lens. The Lord is a redeemer. And this is when we are going to make connections in the Scriptures to help us better understand the plan of God in Christ. So that when you open this book, you read it that way. The plan of God in Christ. And we will better understand, I pray, what Jesus is talking about in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, when beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to those disciples what was written about him. And in John 5, when he tells Pharisees that you search the scriptures thinking that in them you find eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. If we walk out of here understanding that better today, we will have spent this time well. So here we go. The first piece, the genealogy of David and the genealogy of Jesus. Let's consider some of these folks. I'm going to read the genealogy from Ruth 4 again. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Our brother read Matthew chapter 1 earlier. I'm going to read the first seven verses. The very first words of our New Testament are these. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In these genealogies, saints, let's just think about some of the people who are there. Ruth and Boaz are there. Before we get to Ruth, did you notice who Boaz's mother is? Her name is Rahab. In the book of Joshua, chapters 2 through 6 in particular, we learn about her. She was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. And when God was giving Israel the land of Canaan and they came and conquered that city, she hid Israelite spies and therefore Joshua saved her and her family. And we read in Joshua 6, when that book was written, she has lived in Israel since then. And then the evangelist tells us, that this woman was the mother of this man named Boaz. Boaz marries a foreigner, a widow named Ruth. Even more so, she is a Moabite. The relationship between the Moabites and the people of Israel was strained at best. But even more so, consider where the Moabite people came from. The Moabite people hail from an incestuous union between Lot and his daughters recorded in Genesis 19. Lot's older daughter bore a son named Moab. That is the history of Ruth's people. It's ugly. That portion of Genesis 19 is one of the more difficult, cringeworthy passages to read in all of Scripture. What's the point of me observing these things, of us thinking about this? That... Rahab, Boaz, Ruth, a Moabite woman. These people are in the genealogy of Christ. It is that the Lord is a redeemer. God saves unworthy people. Next, Judah and Tamar are there. You remember their story. Genesis 38. Judah married a Canaanite woman, and he had three sons with her. Judah took Tamar to be the wife of his firstborn son named Ur. Ur was a wicked man in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And so then, the second son of Judah by this Canaanite woman named Onan, after the pattern of a leveret marriage, right, was obligated to marry Tamar and have children with her. But because he knew that any children that he had would not be his, they would be his brother's inheritance, right? Onan never completed the sexual act with Tamar. The Lord was angered by that, and therefore the Lord put him to death too. So then Judah, for his part, says, you know, both of my sons who have been with this woman have died. I really don't want my third son to die. So Tamar, why don't you go back to the house of your father, and when my youngest son, Shelah, has grown up, you can marry him. Time passes. Judah's wife dies. He mourns. But then after a period of mourning, he's traveling again to have his sheep sheared. Tamar has heard about this. She realizes a lot of time has passed. Shelah, Judah's son, has grown. I've not been given to him in marriage. And so she hatches a plan to expose the lies of her father-in-law and seek vengeance in the situation. So Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and positions herself outside a town in Judah's path. Judah, with zero hesitation on his part, has relations with her, and she concedes. Judah promises that he's going to send payment to her, but in the meantime, Tamar asks for a pledge. She says, give me your staff, your signet, and your cord until the payment comes. He gives it to her. It's like giving you, giving somebody in our day your ID and your keys, right? And it's some important stuff. Several months pass. Judah hears that Tamar... His former daughter-in-law has been immoral and that she is now pregnant because of that immorality and in a moment of spectacular self-righteousness he says bring her out and let her be burned then Tamar reveals that she is pregnant by the man to whom the signet the cord and the staff belong it is a gripping moment and Judah repents by God's grace It is a sordid and twisted account. But it is this union between Judah and Tamar, those circumstances, saints, that produces twin sons, one of whom is named Perez, Ruth 4.18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Yes, that one. Again, what's the point? The Lord is a Redeemer. David and Bathsheba are there. Or as she is called in the genealogy in Matthew, the wife of Uriah. You remember their story. David had sent his army to war. This is recorded in 2 Samuel 11. David had sent his army to war, but he remained in Jerusalem. One afternoon he takes a walk and he sees a woman. He thinks she's beautiful. He has... Finds out who she is. She's married to a man in his army named Uriah. Nonetheless, he has her brought to him. They have relations and Bathsheba conceives. She lets David know this, that she's pregnant. David then sends and has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, brought back from the battlefront. David spends a couple of days with Uriah in the castle, in his house. The whole thing is manipulative, David then sends Uriah back to battle with a letter for Joab, the commander of the army. And that letter effectively contains a death sentence for Uriah. David is instructing Joab, the commander of the army, put Uriah in the most difficult place of fighting and abandon him. The thing goes down. Uriah dies. And then David shrewdly operates and communicates in such a way that it seems to everybody watching that Uriah's death was just a normal casualty of war. David then takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And all of this displeased the Lord. That is written verbatim in 2 Samuel 11:27. 27. And so the Lord sends to David a prophet named Nathan, 2 Samuel 12. Nathan the prophet shows up to David's place and tells him a story, a parable. He said, there were two men in a city. One of them, very wealthy, had a lot of possessions, a lot of livestock. There was another man in that same city, very poor, had nothing except one lamb. This poor man raised this lamb practically with his family and loved this lamb very much. Well, one day the rich man had friends in town and not wanting to kill one of his own animals, he goes and steals the one lamb from the poor man so that they can have a party. And David is indignant. He's outraged and responds, the man who's done this, deserves to die, and he needs to repay that lamb fourfold. And Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. And David repents. The Lord, through the prophet, says to David, I have anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you everything. Why have you despised my word and done this evil thing? Again, what's the point? It's that the Lord's a redeemer. All of this teaches us something. Why is it that Jesus came? Jesus hails from these people, which makes it all the more poignant when the angel shows up one night talking to Joseph, who's trying to figure out, am I going to marry Mary because she's with child and we are not together? An angel shows up and says to Joseph, Joseph, Son of David, that's significant. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In the lineage of Jesus Christ is incest, deceit, lust, lying, prostitution, murder, you name it. And this is exactly why he came to assume the humanity that has been corrupted by every imaginable sin under heaven so that he might redeem his own. Amen, somebody. I know this is heavy, but amen to that. That's why you're here, I trust, because he's done this for you. Secondly, under all you know, heading four, I want us to talk about Jesus and David. Jesus and David. We ought never read the Bible as just a collection of stories. We ought never read the Scriptures as just a collection of testimonies about various individuals. We read the Scriptures as a cohesive, beautiful whole, because they are. As I've already said, David is the culmination of the genealogy of Ruth 4. So then the question is raised, why does David matter? What's the big deal about David? Certainly he was a significant king in the history of Israel. A man after God's own heart. The only other king that is in the conversation with David in terms of how he ruled over the course of a life is Josiah. The only other figures in the Old Testament that are as significant as David are Abraham and Moses. But David is significant. David's name is at the end of this genealogy. Because the Lord made a covenant with him. God made a covenant with this man. So that's what we're going to think about. Second Samuel chapter 7 is where this covenant is made. And in that chapter, the Lord tells David that he would raise up an offspring for him. And that the Lord would establish the throne of that offspring forever. And that David would never lack a man to sit on the throne. Now, David's sons will be kings over God's people. A few significant things here. Way back in Deuteronomy 17, before there even was the first king, we learned that the king would have a handwritten copy of God's law that the Levites would approve that he would then keep and seek to obey. The king was to know and keep the law. In 1 Kings 8, When the temple is dedicated, through Solomon's prayer, we understand that Solomon understood that as king, he was to guard the worship of the Lord in the temple. And then this piece, massively significant for our understanding of the Scriptures, the Davidic kings, the sons of David who would rule as king, would represent the people under the law of Moses. Listen to these words from First Kings 9, 4 through 7. Just listen, jot it down, you can read it later. The Lord, speaking to Solomon after the dedication of the temple, says this, quote, And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. The people will dwell securely, right? As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel. From the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. In other words, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. You're tracking. If the king obeys, the people will be secure. If the king doesn't obey, God will cut off the people. This matters. Jeremiah 23. I'm turning there. We'll we'll Bible drill together. Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 14. It's good that you would see these things for yourself. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. In other words, he's going to do it. Ezekiel 34, just listen. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. Saints, this is what he's doing. I will feed them with good pasture I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will rescue my flock. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. The Lord will seek and save his people. He will bring back the strayed and rescue them. He himself will be their shepherd. And at the same time, he says David will be their shepherd. Now, you realize this because you're thoughtful people. At the point in which Jeremiah penned these words, David had been dead a long time. Let the hearer understand. God the Son, who is the Lord, would take on human flesh and was born into the line of David. At a number of points during his time on earth, people, for example, blind beggars, would cry out to him and address him as Son of David. Then there's this interchange that he had one time with the Pharisees. This is from Matthew 22. Just listen. How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Ruth 4.14 What is it that the townspeople said to Naomi? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Beloved, the Lord has not left us without a Redeemer either. This one that we're considering today, the son of David, David's greater son, the Lord in human flesh is that Redeemer. He came the first time to save us, to die as a human being under the law, to pay its penalty and to bear God's wrath for human beings. He came to keep the law as a human being so that his obedience, his righteousness under the law as a man could be counted to men by faith. By faith, not by doing, not by achieving, but by receiving, by faith, we receive his merits, his holiness, and his righteousness. It is as though we have never sinned or been a sinner, And it is as though we have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Received by faith. And he will come a second time to judge the world. The Father has appointed to him that role. It is Christ who will sit on the judgment seat. At that point, all of his sheep will be gathered in. The dead will be raised and all humanity will stand before Christ. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And the only ones who will stand in the judgment are those who have obeyed the law perfectly. Not just heard it, but they've obeyed it. The only ones who will stand in the judgment are those who are without sin. In other words, the only ones who will stand in the judgment are those who are found in him. Covered in his own blood, and dressed in his own righteousness. Those who have been united to him by faith, those who trust him, not themselves, not their works, him for the forgiveness of sins and for perfect righteousness under the law. And for now, Christ's people live in this world. We live in this, pe- in this world as sojourners, and as exiles, as pilgrims, nourished and sustained in the church until the day when the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more. We will be with the Lord in a new heaven, and a new earth. May he remind us anew of the hope to which we've been called. Because we're all so earthbound. I felt that this morning driving to church. I trust you felt it too. May God give us eyes to see, hearts that would know the hope he has called us to. The glory of Christ, as was prayed earlier, will be the light of that kingdom. The presence of Christ will be our comfort. The name of Christ will be our song. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land, beloved. And in the meantime, he, our redeemer, David's greater son, comforts us with the promise of his return. These words are from the end of this large book that I'm about to read. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray.